The grace and peace of Christ be with you. And also with you. Let's turn and greet one another. welcome you to Laguna Presbyterian Church, especially those of you visiting with us. We're just so glad that you're here with us today. On each one of the rows near the center aisle, there is a friendship pad. It's a black folder, and we'd love to have you take it and fill it out and let us know you're here, and then pass it down the row so that other people can do that too. The announcements in the life of the church are in the connections that you'll find inside of your bulletin. There is one announcement that is not there, and if I don't do it at the beginning, I will forget uh, Anna and George Kofalas wave at us. Um, they are very instrumental in a ministry in Greece called Benjamin Child that helps orphans and children who just are very low income. And we had a there was a benefit yesterday for them. In preparation for that benefit, some of our people made 96 pies, and we have a few left, a few apple pies left, and they're out on the patio. And at the end of the service, you can buy one to not only enjoy, but you would benefit Benjamin Child and the children of Greece who are having trouble making ends meet by, by enjoying some pie. Get one that I made. They're the especially good ones. Um, and I'd like to introduce to you one of our Christian education elders, Mike Milson, who has an announcement about a new program that we're going to be beginning in January. Good morning. Some of you may be familiar with the Alpha program, possibly might even have been through it at some stage, uh, might have had a big impact on your life, um, even maybe the start on the road of a closer relationship with Jesus. Uh, the Alpha program was started uh, quite a long time ago in England. Our pastor, Nicky Gumbel, at Holy Trinity Brompton Church in London started it. He took over a church, it was a very small church, it was a dwindling congregation, and he was trying to find a way that he could invite people from the community in to come in and discuss the Christian faith in a low-pressure environment. So he put together a program which is basically coming together and sharing a meal together. It's a very relational part of, uh, of um, the Alpha program is, is to form a group together, to share a meal together and then listen to either a talk or a video and then get together in small groups. And those small groups will stay together for the whole duration of the course uh, to discuss what you've just seen and what you've just heard, but to discuss it where you can bring any questions you want, any thoughts you want, any, any sort of query that you have about the Christian life, just to come in and freely discuss it with people who will not be judgmental, and you can just discuss whatever you want in that. There are a few ways that you can get involved in this. We'd love people to volunteer for it. Uh, we need hosts and helpers at each table to facilitate and to welcome in our guests and, and to share this gospel with them. Um, we need people to um, make food as well, prepare meals and as backups, everything as well. One of the big parts of Alpha as well is to invite people. And I'd really ask if you would like to come and participate, but even if you'd like to invite people, if you know people in your life that you would really like them to maybe get to know the Christian faith just that little bit deeper, invite them to come along, and if possible, come with them. And then the foundation of Alpha as well is 
built on prayer and God's Holy Spirit. So I'd ask you all, if you could, if you could pray for this program, pray for the people that are going to come through our doors and uh, join with us in this, and um, pray for the volunteers as well, even in your small, individually, in your small group, even as a church as a whole, just to bathe the whole thing in prayer, and we give it up to God's Holy Spirit in that. Why are we thinking of doing Alpha? We do many things in this church. Um, we preach and we teach the gospel. Uh, we have mission, we have outreach, we have community. We care for each other. But the very center of this is the gospel message. <clears throat> and we would like to share this good news with the church family, with the community, friends and neighbors, and to invite those through our doors, open our doors, so they can come and share this gospel with us. So I'd really like to invite you to join us on this journey, either as a volunteer or as a participant, or to invite people to come and be part of this program. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you, Mike. Oh. <laughs> Alpha is going to be on Sunday evening, starting the second Sunday of January, January 12th. If you're relatively new to the Christian faith, or if you kind of feel like you want to redo the basics, it's also a fabulous place for you to do that yourself as a participant in that group. Uh, he has a cart out on the patio today, and that's a good place to find out more. Uh, each December, the first Friday of December, Laguna Beach opens all of its downtown doors to hospitality night. And in our Rose Garden, we serve about 1,000 cookies to the community, as well as hot cider and hot cocoa and all sorts of wonderful things. Uh, but th those cookies come from you, donating those cookies. So you can sign up out on the patio today to donate part of the 1,000 cookies that we need for that evening, which is December 6th. We also need people to be greeters that evening. So if you like to be a greeter and welcome people so they can come in and see the sanctuary, that's a great thing that you can sign up for out there too. It's also a day that you can sign up to sponsor one of the poinsettias that will be decorating the sanctuary during the Advent season that's out there. Every November, December, we have a giving tree. It has uh, some names on it. You take a name and the, you, it lists a gift that someone wants. It's either a child in the La Playa English as a Second Language program, or it might be somebody in the military outreach down at Camp Pendleton, or somewhere else. It is a great chance for you to give a Christmas gift to a, particularly a child who wouldn't necessarily get one otherwise. So you can pick up one of those there in Tank Hall, um, and you can pick up a slip to do that. The third Friday group invites you to join them on the second Friday of December for their Christmas dinner. Our entertainment this year will be the Madrigal Singers from Costa Mesa High School. Great group, great catered dinner. It will be a wonderful evening. We're beginning to sign up today. And if you have been wondering about the Christmas season schedule, it is now here inside of your bulletin. Christmas Eve is different this year. Two, four, six, and eight are the times of the services. Not what they used to be, which I'm not even going to say to confuse you. Two, four, six, eight, who do we appreciate? There you go. That's the time. Those are the times for Christmas Eve. And so you can keep track of that now. And this week we learned on Thursday that Barbara Stroop, one of our members, passed into the presence of the Lord. We don't yet know when the services will be for Barbara. Let's turn our hearts to the Lord. Let's pray. Holy God, we are people who must sing you. We are witnesses to your splendor at work in the world and to your mercy to us in Jesus Christ. And we will not keep silent ever again. And so we come to you now with lyrics that push us past our reasons, with melodies that break open our givens, with cadences that locate us home, with tones and tunes that open our lives beyond control and our futures beyond despair. So we come to worship you through Christ our Lord. Amen. Would you join me in the responsive call to worship that you'll find printed on the front of your bulletin? God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. 
Make known his deeds among the nations. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. Shout aloud and sing for joy, O royal Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So let us stand and sing together. I want to see you. 
seated together. Let's just sing holy one more time. see Christ in us. Help us to see Christ in each other as well. Let's sing this song. Lord, show us your ways that we might walk with you.
And so we pray responsively. God of exodus and wilderness, God of refuge and help, hear us now as we make our confession to you. You give Give us everything everything we need, yet we remain unsatisfied. You trust us to care for creation, yet we abuse that trust and spoil what we have been given. You show us the way we are to follow, yet we continue on paths of self-indulgence and self-centeredness. Forgive us and teach us your way, O Lord, that we may love you and one another with an undivided heart. And so we bring you now the silent confessions of our hearts. So loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. 
Indeed, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Trust this good news. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. Amen. Well, you may not know it, but this church is heavily influenced by Fuller Theological Seminary. There are four or five people on your staff that are Fuller grads or Fuller students. And there are members of your congregation, they've infiltrated you, that are parts and have um, either been students or part of the boards of Fuller Seminary. So we are graced today to have the president of Fuller Seminary, Mark Laberton, here, who is an ordained Presbyterian pastor, spent many years up in Berkeley at Berkeley Presbyterian Church, and most recently is a scholar and president of Fuller Seminary. Uh, when I think about Mark, I think not only as a long-term colleague and friend, but I think of him as somebody who helps us to keep our sanity in orthodoxy. Because as you know, these days we can fly into all sorts of craziness. So Mark, thank you for being here today. May you help us from going crazy. Thank you. It is a really a wonderful honor to be able to be here today because I do know so many people that have been part of this congregation, and though I've never had the opportunity to worship with you before, uh, it certainly is a church that has affected me and other people because of how your life together has influenced them. So thank you very much for the privilege of being here. The text that we're going to look at today is one that is sadly imprisoned in wedding ceremonies and often uh, only read in that context. It just turns out that the Apostle Paul didn't really write it for the sake of a wedding ceremony, though it is perfectly wonderful to have it read in a marriage ceremony and it has meaning in that setting, but it often imprisons its meaning to something much, much smaller than the Apostle Paul had in mind. You are engaged in a series on Exodus. Exodus, as you know, is one of the two great paradigms of the Old Testament. The first is Exodus and the second is exile. And in the Exodus paradigm, it's fairly straightforward. You know who the good guys are, you know who the bad guys are, you know the goal is to get out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, except that there is this grand interruption that occurs even in between the unfolding of that plan, the departure from Egypt and the arrival in the Promised Land has this period, this place, this mindset, this, ex this experience, which is simply thought of as wilderness. The text that I want us to look at today is a text that I think grounds us in a wilderness, and we'll reflect on it in a moment. Here then, this reading of the whole of 1 Corinthians 13, so that you can have the context for the verses that I want to focus on. The Apostle Paul writes this, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, 
but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Oh God, may you meet us in this time as we reflect on these verses, as we consider the challenge of wilderness living, as we think about the circumstances and realities of life for us and for many others. So may we receive your word today as good news and live in response to it. In Jesus' name, amen. For many years, my wife was a mountaineering guide in British Columbia. It was in the wilderness of British Columbia, and the trick about leading high school campers in mountaineering on glaciers and vast granite fields was really all about keeping your bearings. Because they were so high, it was at times relatively easy to be able to see where they were. They, of course, had a compass and they had a map, and all of that worked a lot of the time. But she tells a very significant story of a time when for about three or four days uh, there was a whiteout, when the cloud level settled down so low that there was really almost nothing they could see. Even walking just a few yards felt as though it was a tenuous, unfolding task. At the same time, therefore, the compass was of no use to be able to even orient themselves to anything about the land, and the radio that they normally relied on was broken and unable to communicate with the people that were in the camp down below. And now suddenly they were truly in a wilderness, within a wilderness, within a wilderness. And now no system of orientation could deliver them. And for those days, as the cold and the wet and the damp settled in, as hypothermia began to be very real for two or three of the high school students that were on this camp, this camping trip, it was an extraordinary experience of utter disorientation. Which direction was which? What possibility would there be of finding our way forward? It wasn't clear how this would actually turn out, though, of course, eventually the whiteout would lift. But when would it lift? And how would it lift in such a way that perhaps the, the two boys that were particularly vulnerable to hypothermia could actually get the kind of medical attention that they needed? That is a literal wilderness, and the definition of that would be life without a map. In the wilderness, there is no map. That's part of what defines the wilderness. There may be points of bearing, but there's no real map. There's no sense that we can actually just course our way through a particular set of steps to find our future or find the right choices that are before us. That's all part of what makes wilderness thrilling, we might say and overwhelming as well. For the Israelites, their experience in the wilderness was not in any way something they expected. The wilderness, they thought, perhaps if they had even used that term, was life in Egypt. That was the wilderness. This circumstance of being in a place where there was no way to get beyond or outside or free from the oppressive power of Egypt. But now, in the wilderness, having come through the water, having found their way toward the promised land, now they're in this season. Unexpected, long, disorienting season. Whiteouts would have been mild by comparison if, if the metaphor could carry. It was a sense of utter lostness. It was a disorientation. It's why one of the things that you know began almost immediately to settle in was kind of a nostalgia. Maybe Egypt really wasn't that bad after all. Maybe we could just go back. We could just retrace our steps and get back to the place that we'd been complaining to because at least we knew there where we were. But now, in this wilderness, no way forward except to go forward. No food except for the manna provision of God. No destination that was clearly able to be reached. No sense that it was going to come about in any kind of predictable time frame. It was an extraordinary experience of wilderness. Now, we may be in Laguna Beach or in Pasadena or, as I was for many years, in Berkeley, and it's possible to be in any of those settings and to be in a wilderness. 
It really has as much to do often with our psychological and emotional frame, our spiritual frame, as it does with our physical frame. It's not just about the things in the world, but it's really about the, the place, the actual place in the deepest and most multidimensional sense of where we live. Who are we? What are we about? Who are we with? Where are we going? What are we doing? Those are all wilderness questions. And the less certain you can be about some of those things, the more overwhelming it can seem. I remember one day looking for something that was a little bit unusual, and I walked into an art store in Berkeley, and I, I said to the clerk, you know, I'm looking for something that I'm not sure exists. And without batting an eye, the clerk said, well, aren't we all? <laughs> it was just one of many such Berkeley moments, as you might uh, imagine. It told in just a tiny little frame that that is our experience. If we're actually thoughtful people, if we understand that we live in a complicated world, if we realize that there are serious choices to be made and challenges that arise, and circumstances over which we are simply insufficient in our rationality or in our calculations or in our provisions or in our companions, it's easy to feel as though we're looking for something that we're not quite sure exists. Surely that must have been part of Israel's experience in the wilderness. This overwhelming sense that the God who had delivered them, the God who had brought them out of Egypt, where is that God? Yes, manna, but manna, shmanna, like after so many days, so many years of manna, what is that? What they wanted was the destination. What they wanted was the promised land. What they found and were experiencing was, of course, the wilderness. Wilderness has come in many different forms. Just this week, I've been with people in different kinds of wildernesses. One of Fuller's students is a DACA student, a student who, because of her arrival in our country as an undocumented young girl of just the right age, is able to exist inside this envelope that has been created at the moment for DACA students. And she was one of the students that appeared this week before the Supreme Court. She was born in a tiny little village in Mexico. She came across the border with her single mom, who worked three jobs to be able to get her to school and then eventually get her to college, and now she's within a year of finishing her PhD. She is a remarkable woman. But to be a DACA student is to be in a wilderness. Imagine her social location and her background and her circumstances and now sitting in the court of the Supreme Court with all of its auspicious surroundings and engaging in what would have been for almost all of her life a truly unimaginable experience. Who am I in this place? What is my voice? What will my future be? Will I be able to finish my degree? When and how will that unfold, and what will happen to this particular case? That night, I was in a forum that we were sponsoring at Fuller for women who have just come out of prison. There were three women who told their really quite dramatically different stories. The first woman, who just last year graduated with her PhD from Fuller, is a woman who was in prison for 37 years for a crime that was committed by her former husband. But because of the way the law is written and her association with him, she was identified as a co-criminal and perpetrator and ended up being sentenced to 37 years in prison. It was absolutely like Israel's wilderness, in a place she couldn't imagine, with a destination that she thought would have no end, over circumstances which she had no control, in the context and with people that she couldn't design or establish or even choose. These are dramatic wildernesses, but we might be in wildernesses of other kinds. Diagnoses can put us into a wilderness. Strain and anxiety with children or loved ones can put us in a wilderness. 
the phrase, we are only as happy as our least happy child, is a wilderness. The circumstances of addiction can put us in wilderness. Issues in relationships, in marriages, or families, or friendships, or colleagues can put us in a wilderness. Politics can put us in a wilderness. All of these wildernesses are available to us. And if we had a field map today and could somehow imagine dropping in our particular wilderness and map the wildernesses that are among us, I would have several to contribute. You might have others as well. And in that circumstance, we are people given to the crisis of the wilderness. And in the wilderness, what we want, of course, is to just get out. So at the very least, what we want is a map. Now, this is, of course, what Israel wanted. Just show us the way and get us out of the wilderness. It just turned out that that was not God's strategy. There was something more important than getting out of the wilderness. It was to be transformed in the context of the wilderness. And it was that work that was God's work. And by the time we come many, many, many hundreds of years later to this particular text in the Apostle Paul's writing to the First Corinthian church, it is a church in Corinth that is a, a, in a context of its own spiritual wilderness. Corinth was a teeming place of ideas and religions. There were more gods than there were people, it was sometimes said. There was an extraordinary sense of bustling energy. There was the presence of Rome. There was the presence of economics. There was the presence of competing religious and philosophical visions. There were so many things that were happening in Corinth. And in the context of that, suddenly God gives birth to a new small little church that's being born in the context of all of those competing voices. It's not a wilderness of emptiness. It's a wilderness of fullness. It's a wilderness where there are so many competing sounds and voices and claims of authority. So where do we go? What do we listen to? What do we hear? Who do we hear? Who don't we hear? Why? How? All of that is part of the context in which now this church is being born. There is a lot of problems. It's an overwhelming circumstance. In fact, the whole Corinthian correspondence in First and Second Corinthians and Many scholars think that there may well have been two or three other letters that may have been written at roughly the same time to try to help this church in a complicated setting sort out its wilderness. And now we come to this particular chapter, which is, I think, from Paul's point of view, the high point of saying this is what you need more than anything else in the midst of a wilderness. And it seems like the most unlikely thing in some ways. It's love. What you really need in a wilderness is love. Now, if you're really lost, and we might like love, but I think we would really prefer a map, and even more, we'd like a guide, really, because we mostly just want to get out of it. But Paul, steeped as he was in the tradition of God's people in, among Israel and in the long history of Israel, God has again and again and again demonstrated that God has something better than a promised land. He has himself. And the gift of 1 Corinthians 13 is really, in Paul's vision, an articulation of love that is embodied in the guide who accompanies us in the wilderness, Jesus Christ, and who's guiding us in that wilderness doesn't necessarily automatically remove it. This is a, a kind of stereotype of Christian salvation, as though somehow following Jesus Christ delivers us from something that might otherwise be our challenge. No, it, sometimes that happens, but more often than not, it's about learning to live into the wilderness, living in the wilderness with more resources than we would ever have ourselves, living into the wilderness with a, a guide who loves us, and in the context of Paul's definition here of love, a, a context in which love is defined in the most graphic and vivid and tangible and powerful terms, he's saying, let this be the reality that actually leads you. Today, do you know who loves you? You may not see God. You may not see yet the promised land. You may not see the map 
that gets you on the other side, but know that you are seen and loved and never forgotten. That your circumstances and your challenges, however overwhelming and devastating at times, disorienting and challenging they may be, that God is with us. And with us in ways that here Paul summarizes in a poetic way, which the Gospels illustrate in this very tangible narrative of the way that God's love has been shown to us in Jesus Christ. It is an amazing grace. And it's that grace that's meant to ground us, to give us hope, to help nurture our steps, to give us the capacity to endure, to strengthen us when we're flagging, to keep us conscious that we are not alone. And in the face of whatever circumstances we might face, there is a God who accompanies us, and this is the character of that God. It is not a game. It is a challenge. It is not something in which we have to take despair because this God is with us. And the witness of my friend, for example, who is a DACA student, or the witness of this woman that I met this week who for 37 years had been imprisoned, those were two women who could bear witness to the fact that there is a God in the wilderness who understood their lives and their challenges and could meet and change them. Now, when you say these words in a context of competency and capacity and giftedness and blessings, as this congregation clearly has, we say sometimes to ourselves, yes, but. But what we really want is to be sure that our bank account is clear, to be sure that we have made the right plans, to be sure that we're guarded against that danger. And all that makes a certain measure of sense. It's just that in the end, the wilderness will outstrip all those things. That's ultimately the message of our life. Now, we do everything possible to make sure that doesn't happen because we prefer to be in control than to not be in control. We prefer to be competent and not dependent. We prefer to be self-reliant and not theologically, spiritually dependent on a God who's going to accompany us. But it's my experience that wait long enough and life will deliver you a wilderness. And the question is, what will you do in the wilderness? And who is with you in it? One day when I was serving as a pastor in Berkeley, I got a call from a woman who said, you know, I'd like to come and, uh, and meet with you, but, uh, but you'd have to agree to certain things before this happened. I said, well, by all means, what, what are your criteria? She said, well, I, I haven't ever met you. I'm not comfortable being in a church building. I'd need to meet you outside the property. I'd need to meet you probably in a public space. I'd need to be able to pace. I need to be able to yell, I need to be able to swear and smoke, and I have a whole lot that I need to get off my chest. I said, wow, that's, that's a lot. Um, maybe just one, one little question first. Um, do you have a gun? <laughs> I was heartened by a modest kind of chuckle and said, well, I don't expect to. So with that, we met in a nearby park. <clears throat> It didn't take more than just a few minutes into the conversation before out came this torrent of anguish and pain and suffering that she had lived for years, decades in a wilderness was screamingly plain. We met multiple times, and as we would meet in this park, you know how park benches are separated often, so I would sit down on one. She was never comfortable sitting down on my bench, so she would sit on the bench over there. And when she was done pacing and yelling, she would sit and yell, and sit and yell some of the most extraordinary details of her own personal journey. Eventually, she said, you know what all this comes down to is this. I just need to know, is there a God somewhere in the universe that knows me and could actually love me? We had just begun to turn to that question and She'd begun, it seemed to me, to show interest. We'd set the next time after multiple times that we had met. I came to that next time and she wasn't there. I called her phone and she didn't answer. I went to the only address I had for her and she wasn't there. And in fact, I learned that she had already moved out. Her phone had been cut off. She was gone. I knew no one who knew her. I didn't know what her story was about or how it would unfold. All I knew was that in the context of all those circumstances, it was an overwhelming moment of feeling this person is just in a wilderness off in the world. 
I thought about her, I prayed for her. Eventually, when the internet came into existence, I would occasionally look for her. I could find no evidence of her. I didn't know what had happened to her. Five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years went by. By this stage, I have now moved from Pasadena, from Berkeley down to Pasadena. I'm in a coffee shop. I stand at the coffee, uh, at the cash register to buy the coffee. And there was a change jar, and next to the change jar, there was a, a letter that explained some things about Burma, a, Myanmar, a country that I've been pretty close to. And I began to read all this and was very impressed with the person's knowledge. And it said at the bottom, if you're interested in making a response to the needs in Burma, please contact me at this address. And it gave an email address, which was the same as this woman's first initial and rather unusual last name. I thought, wow, that, that's amazing. I immediately wrote her an email and sort of sat at my, at my desk or with my phone waiting for her response. I said, I'm not sure if you'd remember me, but this is the circumstance. And eventually the email came back. I do remember you, and that is me. Well, where are you? She said, I'm in the Sierra Mountains. Where do you live? I, I live in Pasadena. Why do you live in Pasadena? Because I'm a student at Fuller Theological Seminary. <laughs> you are a student at Fuller Theological Seminary. Why are you a student at Fuller Theological Seminary? And out began to come some of her story, and then she closed before we decided to postpone our correspondence until she eventually returned a couple of months later. She said, I can't really believe that you remember me. I said, oh no, 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 that, that's not really the problem. <laughs> I, I was just curious if you would remember me because I, I really look forward to picking up the conversation. 25 years had gone by between the time we first met and that moment. And when we reconnected on the campus of Fuller Theological Seminary, here was a person who had been in the most unbelievable wilderness, who now finally was really beyond that wilderness. But the God who she began to meet on those park benches in Berkeley so many years ago was a God who met her in this long healing journey. And why Myanmar? Well, because along the way, God had given her a heart for women who had suffered like she had. And she decided that the way to live that out was to love women in Myanmar as she had felt loved by others along the way. See, the point of the wilderness is not just getting to the other side. It's meeting the only one who can guide us and heal us and remake us in the wilderness. So that when we get to the other side, or even as we are making our way, we have the privilege of being part of the love that Paul says here is a love that grounds and clarifies all things. That is our hope. Are you in a wilderness? Know the God of love is with you. Lord, by your grace, may we, in whatever wildernesses we may find ourselves, emotional, mental, spiritual, economic, political, social, familial. Thanksgiving tables can be wildernesses. Reconnecting with friends and family can sometimes be like a wilderness. We need you, O oh God, to fill and heal and remake us and to be the guide that only you can be. In Jesus' name, amen. And gracious God, as we continue to pray, we think of the world in which we live and the many, many ways in which that world is struggling. We think of those that are facing more fires, those that are facing extreme cold, those that wonder whether there is such a thing as climate change, those who live in constant tension of their lives, as we come upon an election year, we think of all of the polarization that, that drives us apart. We think of the homeless that we see around us in need. We think of the constant and consistent battle for change and for the noisiness and the intensity of life. 
all the communications. O Lord, in the midst of all this, give us your loving presence. And teach us to be a people of prayer. As we listen to your voice, and as you listen to us, we speak that prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It strikes me that uh, we can use our money to increase the intensity and uh, ambiguity and difficulty of life, or we can use our money to relieve the tension and bring peace and grace to others. O Lord, help us to become people who give, that your goodness and mercy might be known in Laguna Beach and Orange County and the rest of the world, particularly through this congregation. Amen. Some of you know the author of this song. His name is Matt Redman. And I didn't want to disconnect Matt Redman's testimony from this song, because we often sing this song. Uh, Matt's father died when he was seven, and he came to realize later in life that it was because of a suicide. And then Matt's um, stepfather was physically abusive to Matt. And Matt was not a Christian. He began to go to church. He heard the gospel and realized that there was a father who loved him. And he's written so many songs of the father's love. And he wrote this one, the talk about that wilderness of suffering and what God had done and does in our life during those times. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place, when I walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. You can sing that with us. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me and the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name. And blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. And sing this with us, every blessing. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious Let's stand and sing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
And so we do bless you, gracious God, as we see even dimly the clarity of Jesus, even as we desire in our ambiguity to be people of generosity, to give of who we are and what you have given to us. May you take these gifts and who we are and use them for the clarity of your love in this world. Through Christ we pray. Amen. And if you would like someone to pray for you or with you, there'll be some prayer ministers right over here, and they would love to do that after the service. When the clouds rolled away and the aurora borealis was out, it was easy to dance and praise God. But when the whiteout was there, it was desperation and pain. We go from this place being able to bear witness to the reality of both things. We know the reality of challenges and circumstances that can feel like unending wildernesses. Go in the confidence that there is beyond that a reality greater than your own suffering or the suffering of others that you know and love. That God who sees all things, sees through the clouds and loves you. But now gives you the opportunity to leave this place knowing that God is not only with you, but allowing and giving all of us the opportunity and the privilege of bearing witness to a love that others may not yet have even imagined. In that wilderness, may we be, bear faithful witness by what we say and perhaps as much by what we do. Now to God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, beyond all that we could ask or even imagine according to the power that is at work within us, to God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.